is Reverend Ferret, and welcome to the last session, session four, for the series for such a time as this. And again, in this session, we're going to study the last part of Philippians 4, 6 through 8. That last part is, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Once we're done, we'll have an awesome expanded understanding of Paul's instruction, his instruction, that if you're going to bring your request before God, there are three things you need to do. And as we come to our God, our Lord, our Father, we should not be anxious, we should not be worried, because we can see what he's like in the Hebrew Scriptures. And again, those Messianic Jews and Gentiles in Philippi nearly 2,000 years ago were beginning to reconnect to possibly how they may have understood Paul's teaching that was written to them probably about 60 AD. And so then, too, as we reconnect, we're able to expand and enhance our ideas about this verse and to see how important it is for such a time as this. And by the way, at this entire series was, I believe, inspired by God himself as we were in the midst of this pandemic of the coronavirus here in the year 2020. A couple of comments I want to make in here before we get into lesson four. This pandemic today is nothing. It's nothing but another global pandemic. Today, as of April 3rd, 2020, we have 58,000 deaths worldwide. That's serious. And it's growing more. Now, as far as the flu is concerned, and I'm not trying to compare the coronavirus to the flu, I'm not, but just looking at numbers, each year there are an estimated 300,000 to 600,000 deaths per year globally from the flu. So over the last 20 years, that's 6 million to 12 million deaths from the flu. The flu is a pandemic, and it's with us every year. But the flu and the Wuhan virus are nothing compared to the Black Death of the 14th century. It is estimated that 300 to 500 million people died in seven years. And there are other pandemics that we have experienced, the swine flu and others. However, this is nothing compared to one, an estimated one billion babies murdered through abortion in the past 20 years globally. Worldwide, it's estimated that over 50 million babies are murdered each year, or 1 billion over 20 years. Talk about a pandemic. There's so many Christians that pay lift service to the pandemic of abortion. We're doing nothing to protect the innocent. Oh, how we will pay for this. Some end times teacher to, teachers today are warning that the corona pandemic is prophesied in the Bible. It's a sign of the end times. How stupid! are these blind guys and blind teachers. First, they dismiss history in that pandemics are common to the human experience. Second of all, what are they doing to save babies murdered daily? Nothing. We say we have eyes to hear, uh, eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts and minds to understand, but it's as if the church is totally deaf and blind with hearts of stone. So the crisis we're in, it is serious. 
Coronavirus is very contagious, but it is just another pandemic of many of the world's face. This is nothing new. This is not an end times event. You can check this out at a link for the description of this session at the website, www.lightamenorah.org. It's in there in that link to review the history of pandemics. Just the simple history of something that we experience as common to the human experience. How ridiculous to think this is the heights of terror. To me, this is nothing compared to what I think the real tribulation will be like. If we think this is bad, just wait. This is nothing like the wrath of God that will be poured upon the earth, poured out on the earth for abortion. The blood of these babies cries out, and God will not let us off the hook. Now, in my view of the fall of man in Genesis 3 through the sin of Adam and Eve, it seems as if God is telling us in his Torah that we're the ones to blame for the current crisis and why the innocent suffer. Why? God has already declared in Genesis 6, I think it's Genesis 6, 5, before the flood, and then in after the flood, in Genesis 8, I think it's probably verse around 20, 21, in both of those cases, before the flood and after the flood, he said the inclinations of the heart of man is to evil continually. He says that before the flood, and then he says that after the flood, with Noah, his wife, his three sons and his three daughters standing there. In other words, nothing's changed. The flood hasn't done anything to change the hearts of man. It is not God's will that the innocent suffer and that babies are massacred in late-term abortion by having a hole drilled in their skull while coming out of the womb and their brain sucked out. It is not God's will that babies in the slums of Nairobi die horrible deaths from hunger and disease. I saw that. God never wanted this. It's not his will. It's our fault. It's always been. That's my view and the view of some key credible Jewish and Christian scholars. Due to the sin garden, the whole earth changed and death and suffering enter the world. This will continue until Messiah Yeshua returns and brings tekun olam. Tekun olam is a Hebrew concept, meaning returning things the way Adonai originally created them. It's like Paul's teaching in Romans, Romans chapter 8, 19 through 23. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the children of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and will attain freedom of the glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning in labor pains until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly while we wait for adoption the redemption of our bodies. So are you ready for session four? Are you sure? Let's go. Come, let's follow him. Let's walk in the dust of Rabbi Jesus, because he is the way. He is the only way. Come, let's go to session four. Now let's consider the last part of Philippians 4, 6 through 7. The last part is... And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, 
will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The peace of God. What is peace? In Greek, it's arena. Uh, no, arene. Arene. That's the Greek. But it's likely that Paul, as a Jew, he's probably teaching a Hebrew concept in Greek. So he probably means the shalom of God. And when we take a look at it, it's a Hebrew word, and shalom means more than peace. Again, Hebrew words do not have definitions. They have conceptual meanings. And it comes from their root word. All Hebrew words come from a root word. And in many cases, in my own Hebrew studies in my master's degree, the root word is always going to give you some sort of a picture. And for shalom, the picture is a completed building. You can say, wait a minute, what does that have to do with peace? How's that related to a completed building? Well, I think I got it. I'm afraid of heights. And I imagine, what if a friend of mine is an iron worker uh, on a New York skyscraper? And he invites me to eat lunch with him. And we go up to the 50th floor. Problem is, the skyscraper's not complete. Because this thing is 60 and 70 floors, and everything above floor 30 is all girders. We're going to eat lunch on the 50th floor on a girder. Not me. No, no, no. I would not be at peace in this incomplete building. I think I would tell my friend I'm going to pass. And this gives us an idea of the conceptual meaning. Peace, shalom, is a feeling one has upon entering a completed building. You would feel no peace if the building was under construction. And when we go to the Gesenius Hebrew lexicon, we find that the conceptual meaning from this com uh, of a complete building, so we're talking about shalom means completeness, wholeness. It means safety. It means soundness. A contentment. It means peace. It means health and prosperity, completeness or safety or soundness or prosperity or peace from war or peace of mind. Now let's return to Psalm 18 verse 33. And what we read, again, in 1833 is, He makes my feet like hind's feet, and he sets me upon high places. God has done it. He put us there. But as a son and daughter of El Shaddai, we know, one, that we're always in his shadow. He's always so close to us. And now, number two, he gives us feet like an ebex as we walk in high places. When we take a look at the righteous and the unrighteous in terms of the kingdom and in terms of Jesus, we have to say this. Everybody has their high places. Everybody has their ups and their downs. Everybody has their difficulties. All of us. Nobody, no human being can escape the high places, whether it be the high place of exaltation, important jobs, important challenges, and so on, or it could be the high places of danger, death even disease. But the righteous have the shalom of God. The unrighteous don't. We have the shalom of El Shaddai, and it's beyond comprehension for all the unbelievers. Perhaps the Messianic Jews in Philippi 
they may have recalled how God cared for them in the wilderness of Sinai during the Exodus. It was a very difficult terrain, sometimes very, very uh, mountainous, very rocky. It wasn't, it wasn't a sand desert, a land with no water, no place, no fruit trees, no shade, scorpion snakes, terrible flies and disease. I've been there. I remember the flies in the Sinai. Now the Egyptians in those days called the Sinai wilderness a land of Isfet. That would be the Egyptian word used almost 3,500 years ago. And Isfet means a land of chaos, of disorder, of evil, not conducive to good living. Isfet, chaos. However, when you were living in the fertile lands next to the Nile, the places where the fruit trees grow and the wheat and the barley fields were able to be planted and harvested, the place where all the cities were, that was a place of ma'at, or order. Ma'at was order and harmony, goodness. It was a place where life can happen in a good way. One could prosper. We might say that ma'at is Egyptian shalom. The gods of Egypt and Pharaoh, that was their form of shalom. They even had a god by the name of Set. He was the god of chaos and storms, violence and fire. And his place was considered, or his domain was considered the wilderness or the desert. The wilderness of Sinai. And here's God, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Where does he take his people? He takes them into the Sinai wilderness. The Egyptians were probably scratching their head and said, this is a crazy God. Their God is bringing them to Is, into Isfet, into chaos, a place where there's death, a place where they're under the control of the evil God set. But our God blessed his people with shalom. In the midst of chaos, God's shalom, his blessing of life and order and peace. In the midst of chaos and death, Isfet. To the Egyptians, this was beyond comprehension. It's just like the verse when we're reading it in Philippians 4, verses 6 through 7. and verse 7, and the peace of God, the shalom of God, surpasses all comprehension. What's happening to the Hebrews in the Sinai wilderness is beyond the comprehension of anybody who are not part of the people of God. So indeed, by putting Philippians 4, 6 through 8 in its historical context, it enriches her understanding. It allows us to apply this verse in the midst of fear and disease and confusion and death and the pandemic of the China virus. As his sheep, part of his flock, we too are blessed with his shalom. Now Abba will keep our minds and our hearts. He will guard our hearts and our minds. In Jesus' day, the heart was our mental capabilities. If you take a look at Matthew 15 and 13 through 19, as you're reading there, as I'm paraphrasing, you'll find that out of the mouth uh, comes evils and lies, and this comes from the heart. And Jesus goes on to say that from the heart come evil thoughts and murders and adulteries, thefts, false witness, and so on. James's brother talks about how can blessing and praise come out of our mouths along with cursing and lies. 
However, cursing and lies comes from the heart. Blessing and praise comes from the heart. In Genesis 8.21, after the flood, Noah, his wife and his three sons and his uh, daughter-in-laws are standing there. And so these are the supposedly the last eight people, or the, the, the only eight people on the face of the earth, and they're supposed to go be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And what does God say about them? What does God say about Noah, his wife, and his sons and his daughters? That the intention of their hearts, in other words, their minds, and the intention, the Hebrew word there, is the product of their heart, that the, their intent of man's heart is evil continually. So we might rephrase that text where it says, he will guard your hearts and your minds, and we might say, he will guard your thoughts and your ideas and your minds. And the Greek word there for guard is to surround with a military guard. Abba, our beloved Father, as we are in Christ Jesus, will guards our thoughts, our ideas, and the intentions of our heart, of our mind. Now, I've often wondered what the last few words of this verse mean. And the last few words therein, verse 7, is in Christ Jesus. What does that mean? In Christ Jesus, that phrase is used 50 times in the New American Standard Bible. The phrase in Christ is used 88 times in the New Testament. So to understand that, I went to the Hebrew. Again, Paul is Jewish. He's likely trying to convey a Hebrew concept, trying to teach that Hebrew concept in Greek. In Hebrew, the second letter of the Hebrew alphabet, Beit, B, if you would, is used many times as a preposition. In other words, before a word. And so, for instance, here's one. Uh, the Hebrew word for earth is aretz. And if I put the bait in front of the word eretz, I come up with be'eretz, and that would give the meaning of in the earth, a part of the earth. So it becomes a preposition. Here's, here's another one. The, Greek, the Hebrew word for morning is boker. So if I got up in the morning, I might say be'boker in the morning. Now, if you think about that, uh, how can you get up in the morning? The morning is not a something physical. It's not a box. You can't get into the box. It it's time. I, I think a better way of saying it, when it was morning, in other words, the time that it is morning, I awoke. My waking was part of the morning time. And so the preposition using the Hebrew letter bait means in or by or next to or with. So in the Hebrew mindset, if we say be Yeshua in Jesus, or if we say be Mashiach, in other words, in Messiah or in Messiah or, or in, in Christ, or be Mashiach Yeshua in Christ Jesus, what does that mean? From the Hebrew idea, we get the idea that it means that we are connected to Jesus in a unique, special way. Well, think about that. He's a good shepherd. And we are in his flock. We're one of his sheep. So we're in Christ Jesus. Israel, 
they were in the Lord God of Abraham. Why? You can go to Ezekiel 34, starting in verses 11 through 31, and you can read about what God is saying about Israel. They're his flock. They're his sheep. And so therefore, they're in the Lord God if they are part of the flock of Adonai. In Jesus' day, there were two great rabbis, Hillel and Shammai. And these rabbis had disciples, just like Jesus had disciples. And the group of disciples of Hillel, they were called Beit Hillel, the house of Hillel. The disciples that Shammai had, they would be called Beit Shammai, the house of Shammai. So Jesus had disciples. He had his core group of 12. He had 70 that he sent out. Later on, he had 120 that he basically said goodbye to on Mount of Olives uh, right at his ascension. So we might say that those disciples were part of the house of Yeshua. They were in Christ Jesus. They were in that group. So Paul is inspired by God to teach us. He's inspired to teach us in this text of Philippians 4, 6 through 8. That God bestows a wholeness and complete, completeness to life, his shalom upon us. And we have peace and harmony, even surrounded by chaos all around us. And his shalom guards us. Guards our thoughts, our inclination from our heart, our mental outlook. He puts a military guard around our minds. And all of this for those who are one of the sheep of the flock of Yeshua. All this for those who are part of the ecclesia of the Lord. We would say the church. All this for those who are a disciple in Beit Yeshua, the house of Yeshua. All this for those and only for those in Christ Jesus. All I can say is wow. You put this verse into its historical context and its setting and we ask how might have those Messianic Jews understood it? And from that ancient culture our ears hear with an added volume we reconnect to those days and our eyes see more clearly and more sharply. Our hearts, our minds understand his truth in a more enhanced, in a more enhanced way. For us in Christ Jesus, we are part of his flock, we are one of his assembly. We are never out of the shadow of El Shaddai. Shalom.